And this morning we will begin here in Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we believe, as your word tells us, that there is a thin veil between this world and the next. And we're praying in these moments, as we consider your words, that you would help us to live faithfully in this world, even as we have our eyes and hopes set on the next. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I believe that many of you are very familiar with the movie, and it's now become a series called uh, the, the the Matrix. Um, you're familiar with it as it's become somewhat, uh, depending upon the circles that you uh, visit or talk to, the movie is a bit cult-like. It has a bit of a cult following, and the reasons for this are many, but uh, you, you need to understand that the reality that the, the movie portrays in The Matrix uh, has some crossover. Um, now, if I just simply ask you, would you like to take the red pill or the blue pill. I think many of you will know what I'm referencing. It's one of the key scenes of the entire movie. Um, The most basic premise of the movie is that the world is not as it seems to be. All the lives of the people who are living in the late 1990s are turned out to be just a virtual reality program while humanity is actually uh, in a dark, dark place, unawakened to what they're really living in. And Neo, this main character in the movie The Matrix, he is given a decisive moment where he can determine if he wants to see how far down the rabbit hole things go. And so he can choose to take the red pill. If he takes the red pill, then he will discover and realize the full reality that he's living in. The dark underbelly of this thing called the matrix and the facade of the virtual world that he's living in that's like ours. Or he can take the blue pill. And if he takes the blue pill, then he will remain blissfully unaware of how bad things really are. Now in the movie, the guide, Morpheus, says to Neo this pointed line where he says, "Um, I can't tell you about the matrix. He says, I can't tell you, you will have to see it for yourself. I can't tell you, you will have to see it for yourself. And I think John the Apostle's experience here in the book of Revelation on a Sunday where he was having a heavenly vision is a bit similar. He hears a voice from behind him saying, come up here and I will show you what must soon take place. And essentially he hears those words, I can't just tell you, you will have to see it for yourself. And there's no choice for John. There's no blue pill. 
he must take the red pill and see the reality behind the thin veil of our life. And in some continuity with the movie The Matrix, he's given the ability to see an intense view that was unlike anything that we could imagine. What is remarkably different, though, is that when John is able to see behind the veil, he's able to understand most clearly what is really going on. He does not find the world is like The Matrix, in which we experience a dark enemy who is actually controlling everything. No, no, no. As John begins to get this heavenly vision, it's quite the opposite. When John gets to hear and to see the reality, he discovers that his best friend, his Lord, and his Savior are alive and well. John, he sees Jesus and he finds him handsome and powerful. He sees that nothing has escaped his notice and that this majestic warrior behind the scenes shows him that while everything on earth may look bleak, the future reality is this. It's paradise. The future reality is, as we saw last week, a tree of life. As we read this week, a crown of life. You see, a large percentage of Revelation is dedicated to providing comfort to those under attack from the dragon. Recall as we opened up this book, we said that, uh, that one of the major themes of this book is kill the dragon and get the girl. And that this warrior knight, Jesus Christ, has come to do just exactly that. He's come ultimately to finally and decisively kill this dragon and get the woman, his bride, the church. And here, with the church of Smyrna, we find the situation is a bit different than last week when we examined uh, Ephesus. What do we see here? Well, as a heads up, it's interesting. Here, we will see no rebuke. Uh, Most of the churches receive abuke. You're doing this well, but this I have against you. With Smyrna, there will be no rebuke. Here we hear the uh, words of Christ to this church through two major sections. And I'll try and highlight these so you can catch them as we go. First, it'll be the earthly situation, which is verses 9 through 10a. And then we'll catch the heavenly reality, which is 10b through 11. And we'll circle back to verse 8, as I believe the portrayal of Christ there in verse 8 directly relates to the issues that Jesus is confronting here with the church in Smyrna. So first, the heaven, or sorry, the earthly situation. While there is some speculating here, I want to tell you what we do know for sure about this city and this church in Smyrna. Christianity, because it was linked to Judaism, it enjoyed some protection from the Roman Empire. This umbrella of Judaism was tucking in Christians for a while. But then evidently as time had gone on, it became rather clear that there was division and this umbrella of protection that the, the Judaism gave the early Christians, they were pushed out from that. Uh, it became clearer and clearer that the religious Jews and Christians were proclaiming a very different gospel. So that eventually... The protection that once was provided is no longer there. And one of the driving forces for this was the fact that early Christians were considered to be atheists. You say atheists? Well, yeah, they they were considered to not have a God. Um, We didn't offer sacrifices to a God like the other religions or gods, plural. Jesus' death in our place was all the sacrifice that was and is needed. We didn't need to meet at a temple for The Bible tells us we are the temple of God. The dwelling place of God is with man. Further, the epicenter 
and cultural ties of early Christianity were moving from being merely in Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So there is no cultural center. There is no epicenter then of of Christianity that remains. And so the Roman system looked at us. They looked at us and said, now wait a sec here. You have no city. Uh, you, You have no particular people group. Uh, no ethnicity that must be the case. You have no temple. You have no sacrifices you're doing. Do you even have a God at all that you're worshiping? You must be atheist. And because of this, we were considered strange. So late first century Jews were uh, to, able to work out an agreement with the Roman government. So the Roman government is uh, over them and overseeing their activities. And, and for some reason, the Jews, not wanting to be under persecution... They said, now, we know that most of the Greeks and, or the Romans would make their sacrifices and offerings of incense to the Roman emperor as a god. But, they, but the Jews said, we're willing to do this sort of thing, but not as a god. And, and so for the sake of their conscience, they'll say, we'll offer a pinch of incense. We'll do a little sacrifice, but it's just to honor the emperor to acknowledge that he's over us. It would be sort of like, I swear, while at the same time, kind of, you know, you got your fingers crossed behind your back sort of thing. It, it might appease their conscience for a moment, but the reality of it is, is uh, it's wrong. And so further add to this, the distancing of the Jews who would, you know, begin to slowly and surely put the Christians under the bus so that they would say, oh, because of our conflict, we're not like them. Greg Beale puts it this way. He says, the Jews... They sometimes had no qualms of semi-revering other deities along with their Old Testament God. Often they were only too willing to make the Roman authorities aware that the Christians were not a Jewish sect. So what turned out at the beginning to see ties between Christianity and Judaism, slowly over time they're going, nope, they're not part of us and therefore feel free to persecute them. Meanwhile, they would say, we've offered our sacrifice. We gave the pinch of incense to the emperor. These Christians, though, not so much. And so then what was the result of all this? What happened? Well, oh, Christian, you used to be part of the trade guild. You used to be part of the union and get your wages. Eh, Not anymore. Oh, Christian, you used to be allowed to trade in the marketplace You used to be able to provide for your family easily and not so much anymore. And many of the monetary implications meant that to be a Christian in this church here, in this city, it meant that you were going to be living in poverty. That being a Christian meant you were forced into the lowest class in the society. Uh, There was a great cost then here to following Christ. You see, too, how Christ assesses the actions of the faithful church of Smyrna in relation to the persecution from the Jews. We see this here at verse 9. Do you see this? Jesus says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. But then we see in brackets there, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So first, Christ is, you know, implying, I'm seeing your, your, uh, your poverty, but truly, spiritually speaking, you are extremely rich. But then he says, uh, he's, he's highlighting that um, he sees this awful work of the Jews. You have to recall, friends, that from God's perspective, being a Jew, it's not ultimately about bloodlines. It's not even ultimately about ethnicity. It's about faith in Christ To be a true Jew, it has to do with your trust and hope in the true God, 
in Jesus. To be a true Jew is to understand and rightly apply what Romans chapter 2 says. Most clearly it says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision an outward and physical. So, so just let that sink in for a minute. Jewishness in God's eyes, it's not about bloodlines and law. What it means to really be a Jew all along is clarified because in verse 29 of chapter 2 in Romans, he says, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. This is why later Abraham in chapter 4 is a great example of what a true Jew is. It was a matter of faith and the spirit doing an inward work in the heart. Later in, in the book of Hebrews, We see so many people celebrated, Jews who truly by faith are leading to obedient actions in trusting Yahweh, in trusting Christ. And this is why uh, Jesus says here, those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And this is rather rather strong language, but but it drives home the point. We want the biblical categories here to form how we view people who say, They are Jewish because of bloodlines and following the law. But Jesus is ultimately saying, those people, oh sure, maybe ethnically they are Jewish, but those are not my people. Recall what Mark chapter 3 says, where he says, Jesus says, here are my, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Do you see how Jesus is Hitting home that the people that are my people are those who do what I command, who in heart have been changed by the Spirit. And so, rather, we would pray that those who desire to worship the God of Abraham and the, and the God of King David would worship the true God of Abraham and King David, Jesus Christ, friends, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And so, we see that Jesus is recognizing that those who follow him are truly the the ones who belong to him. Look at verse 10a here, where he says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. And so then we read that and and are assured that tribulation is going to come to this church here in Smyrna. That these folks here at this moment can anticipate and, and, and predict and, and expect that there will be persecution for them. Some of those in the church of Smyrna will be imprisoned. Jesus' later words implied that some will be murdered for following Jesus, for being his disciples. Uh, it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when for some of these Christians here. And the command then is not to fear, not to fear. This should come upon us as well, to not fear. And I know some of us think, think, you know, you start imagining scenarios, things that could happen directly to us, and you go, you mean, you know, I'm not supposed to dread that? Or that my hands are not get sweaty at the idea of what that could mean? As I'm put on a rail car, as I'm taken over to the chopping block, as I've had the machete to the neck? I, I don't know that that's not the point here, that we're, that we're not supposed to dread that or to view that in negative terms. I think it's rather in contrast to what we see just right after this. After saying, being told, do not fear, we, we are told right after this that uh, rather we're to be faithful. 
to stick with Jesus to the end. You, you see that there, be faithful in 10b. Be faithful. So there, there's this contrast. Don't fear, because fear, friends, could lead you to all sorts of things that would not be good for you as a Christian. If you feared in such a way that you were so afraid of whatever the consequences might be, that then you begin to backtrack on what it means to be a Christian so that you would outright deny him, so that you would try to circumnavigate this persecution, so that you would avoid um, Christ, that you would reject him, that you would succumb to the pressures of the Romans or the Jews. And so in contrast to being unfaithful, don't fear Remain faithful. And see how the promise is that when they remain faithful, there's going to be a period of time that this goes on for. They will be imprisoned for 10 days. Tribulation for 10 days. This seems here to be an allusion to Daniel chapter 1. You recall in Daniel uh, chapter 1 where he and his three friends, they were were there uh, on going through a period of trial uh, for 10 days. Um, much here, these 10 days similar with the church of Smyrna, they refused to participate in what would ultimately mean for them denying the true God. And while they were tested in Daniel's day by not eating the king's food, after the period of 10 days had passed, they were found to be just as healthy, in fact, better off than those who had eaten the king's food. And so very similarly, I think there's an illusion here going on where Christ is saying, remain faithful for this period of time, for this 10 days, and you too will be found in the end to be just as healthy, in fact, really, truly better off than those who are not. So that in Daniel's time, just as in the church of Smyrna, what is about to happen to them will happen to us, but before, first, I want to hit on the fact that this term ten days here is interesting. Um, some would say, now, were those in Smyrna as they were imprisoned, as they were persecuted? Was this a sense that they were literally put into a box or put into a cell for like ten days? Well, friends, remember that we are in apocalyptic literature, and numbers in apocalyptic mean something. They count. Numbers count, if you will, and so that. Uh, oftentimes we see numbers like a thousand in, in various apocalyptic books. Uh, you'll go and you'll read a thousand, meaning this long period of time. Uh, we see numbers of, as we've already discussed, like seven having this idea of, of completion of the, the wholeness, uh, other numbers, uh, like 10 here being a, a certain period of time, but not, not a thousand, uh, not a thousand years. Um, so it's a short period It's a period of time, but it's relatively in comparison to everything else. Very short. It's concentrated and it will not last forever. And so we see the Smyrna church is facing this persecution and we read these words and for some reason on us, they seem to fall a little bit flat because we say persecution, maybe for them, but not for us. So we just quickly read past this stuff and and move on to something that we can say applies to us. But remember, this was written to all the churches. Whether they were facing persecution or not, they read these words and they should heed them and listen to them. Um, You know, we believe we are in the land of the free, except really, friends, you know this. I'm I'm just repeating, I'm preaching to the choir here, not so much. Don't forget the gal who was shot for being a Christian here stateside. Don't forget Rachel Scott 
One of the victims from the Columbine shooting, shooting who had written in her journals, I'm not going to apologize for speaking the name of Jesus. If I have to sacrifice everything, she says, I will. And she did. Don't forget the various churches now being targeted so that some have been burned or had mass shootings occur in them. Uh, 2017, not too long ago, Sutherland Springs Church, the shooting there, random, not a random act of violence, but due to the fact that they swear allegiance to Christ. Friends, then let's, let's get closer to home here. Recently, with bills and more bills being pushed forward that would outlaw prayer. Um, recently, with Christians who were gathered not far from here in downtown Portland, gathered just like we were here this morning to worship on together. And men coming, uh, wearing black clothing came and lit off flashbangs and proceeded to throw it into the crowds who were worshiping Jesus. And don't forget that the, in the midst of those crowds were children, some age 10 down to four months. And friends, don't forget Hinson Baptist Church, uh, which I will be at in just a couple weeks for a pastor's conference. They were attacked by a mob just this summer. Right after Roe v. Wade was overturned, their building became a target and windows were smashed and there was threatenings of fire and there was spray paint painting every vile, filthy thing on the building. And this is all alarming to us because uh, we say, well, this is somewhat strange for those who are used to living in United States in the 20th century. Uh, but will become increasingly normal for Christians who are living in USA in 21st century. I'd ask you, friend, look further down the pike. Violence, in some cases, for us, may become the least used form of persecution in our future. It actually may be that we socially pay the price. Are you all aware of the, the Chinese social credit system? Uh, that's recently come out, that in China right now, uh, I think they rolled this out in 2018, 2019, it's an app on your phone, and instead of it being a credit score that would uh, apply to you that only is for like, hey, if I want to go get a loan to buy a home, to get a mortgage, uh, this credit score is, is it's, it's a social credit score. So it goes, the, the, the roots of this are so much deeper and darker. Um, the way that this is now working is that, um, you know, if you go to the grocery store and you, you know, pick up some groceries and some diapers, healthy groceries, well, then your score will go up. Uh, if you go out and you buy some cigarettes and booze, well, then your, you know, your score will go down. Um, if you jaywalk, if you litter, um, if you're mean to someone, your score will go down. If you help a neighbor out next door to you, your score can go up. Now, now we say, hey, it'd be nice to have some cleaner streets. It'd be nice if we all cleaned up our diet a little bit. These things aren't bad. But friends, it doesn't stop there. No, in fact, if uh, those who put any sort of religious symbols up in their windows, your score will go down. If you suspect that your neighbor is having a church gathering in their home and you report them, your score will go up, their score will go down. And it will go so down, they will become blacklisted. Now, once you're blacklisted, it's to the point where not only can you not buy a home, you can't buy a car, uh, you cannot buy a plane ticket, you cannot board a train. You are, like the Smyrna church, forced into an impoverished situation. Friends, believe that this is coming down our, our pike. There are, religious, or there are political leaders right now, as I speak, that are working hard to ensure that that sort of credit system is coming stateside. 
And so if you post anything on Facebook, if you say Jesus next to your phone, your number will go down. And eventually, it will become harder and harder for you to live normally. And really, we say, oh, this is just mind-blowing. This is something we've never even thought of or or never even uh, realized could possibly happen. But friends, this is just an old trick with 21st century technological clothes on. This is the same idea as what we're reading right here about the Church of Smyrna. They followed Jesus and paid the price socially, economically, and with their lives to follow Christ. And so then if if the Christians are facing what seems to be from a worldly perspective, poverty and and destruction, Jesus wants to show us and show them that's not the, that's not really what it, it is. The reality as it seems is not the reality at all. It's as if we, we sort of in view it working this way. Okay, so if I follow Jesus, it means I will become socially an outcast. If I follow Jesus, it means I will economically become an outcast. And then what? Oh, now Jesus, you're telling me that my very life will be lost? And then what? Once my life's been lost, that I go into the pit of nothingness? Is that how this whole thing is supposed to work out? But friends, that's not what scripture tells us at all. You may lose the economics, you may lose the social cred, you may lose your very life, but the further down you go, Jesus assures us, the further up you will go. Friends, it's those who desire to be up now who will find themselves in the very pit. Look at verse 10b here. Be faithful. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overconquers will not be hurt by the second death. Now, I want you to know a little bit of background about the church of Smyrna that makes these words from Jesus pop. Um, the, the, The church of Smyrna, it was about 600 AD. It had been completely sacked. Um, enemies had come in and they completely drained out. They took out all the treasure. They destroyed everything that was good there. And those who remained in the city, they considered it dead. The city that was full of life at one point, it was thriving. It was a great metropolis. It had died. But about 290 uh, BC, there was an infusion of, of uh, monetary uh, resources and assets in, into the city. It was propped back up. It was built back up. And so from the, the citizens of Smyrna, they viewed it as if, well, we had died. And we had come back to life. We had been restored again. Which is why I think they would have perked up when Jesus says in verse 8, go back to verse 8 here, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and has come back to life. You see the emphasis as well with these Christians who are facing the fact that their very life may be taken from them, and yet the call for them to be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Here, these Christians need to be faithful to Christ because it is Christ that will ensure that what has happened to him will happen to them. He died, yet he's alive forevermore. These Christians, if they die, what has happened to Christ will be their future too. A crown of life. And the second death, uh, which is in reference to the final judgment. So the second death, that future judgment, not going to touch them. It's not for them. To quote Jesus, where he was speaking of his good friend, you recall the story of Lazarus. Lazarus had indeed died. And Jesus' words about his good friend Lazarus was, this shall not end in death. 
here as the church in Smyrna, as they conquer, it is though Jesus is giving them the red pill and he's saying, be faithful and this will not end in death. To show them what seems final and a steep descent into the pit and them going as low as they possibly can go will actually mean them going in the end to the highest victory. Friends, let these words of Jesus settle on your heart. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Friends, this is why we desire. This is why the very heartbeat of this church is that the gospel would be known. Because fear is so common to us. We fear far more than we want to admit. And what is it that we fear? We fear anything that can be taken from us. It's human nature. To fear what could be stripped of us. So you and I, we fear things that can be taken like our jobs, our finances, our homes, our spouses, our lives. We fear that we could lose these things. And the Bible is saying to us, and Jesus' words to us, stop fearing what you will lose. Because you will lose your home. You will lose your life. You will lose your spouse. You will lose all these things. But start clutching to what the world can never take away from you. And that is Christ and eternal life. And it goes so much further beyond this. A future land. A fullness of a great kingdom. A people to belong to. A tree of life to eat from. Real happiness that nothing can take from us. And I'm not sure where you're at this morning, friend. But I just call out to you. If you're not sure that this future hope and joy is truly yours, if you're worried that you've clutched onto what you will lose, and you're not sure if you clutched onto what you can never lose, please talk to a Christian here. Talk to myself after service. We make ourselves available because we do not want one man, woman, or child to not have this crown of life. See why this Smyrnan church would not sacrifice to the Roman emperor? Jesus had paid it all. He was the sacrifice to end all sacrifice. Um, Jesus had paid for their sin. How could they now leave who had paid for their sin and try to appease the cult system of the Romans? They couldn't. And as a reward, they will have a crown. Recall last week how the reward for faithful loving was the right to eat from the tree of life. Here, it's faithfulness unto death that leads to a crown of life. And these crowns are mentioned numerous times in Revelation, and it seems to be a metaphor for eternal life. And recall that as it is written to the church, but it is directed to the one. Meaning, even if everybody else here in this room turns away from Jesus in fear says, ah, I will capitulate to the world. I will offer the sacrifice. I will offer the incense. I will do whatever it is that the government wants me to do. But to the one, to the one of you who says, no, I'm sticking with Jesus all the way to the cross. The promise is for you that this reward will surely be yours. 
And so in applying this, in light of all the mild types and forms of persecution that you and I face, can I just call you, Christian, to be faithful? Those words that we read from here from Jesus, be faithful, but be faithful in the small things. Uh, How can you be faithful in the big things if we're not faithful in the small things? See, I've already got it planned out. When they come marching through the doors here and they say, are you the pastor? Do you believe in Jesus? I will say, cha-ching, I'm getting out of here. Pull the trigger. I've already got that planned out. But when my family smirks and says, are you, you really into this thing? Is this really? Are you that excited about this thing, Jesus? Uh, when the coworkers, you know, make a dig, say, ah, those Christians, they believe this. Are you willing to stand up in the small places? Are you willing to be faithful for the small things? Because friend, if you're not willing to be faithful for the small things, how do we know we'll be faithful in the big things, even if we've got it all planned out? I'm just preaching myself even in this. It's like, be faithful in the small things. Be faithful in making disciples. Be faithful in repenting of sin. Be faithful in pursuing truth. Be faithful in building up love for one another and for Christ. Be faithful in rehearsing the gospel to myself because the enemy, the dragon, is constantly telling me a whole other script. And so we have to be faithful in these small ways because the small ways will build up so that we will stand firm when the gun is to the head. Christian, be faithful in the little things for the paradox of Christian life is that the way up is down. Things are not as they seem. Behind the matrix of our world, we find that now is where darkness dwells. Now is where people have sold their lives to the prince of this world. But we belong to the king whose kingdom is not of this world. One day that kingdom is going to break forth and no one can keep taking the blue pill at that moment. Someday, as we see at the end of Revelation, nobody's going to keep taking the blue pill and say, I'm denying reality here. Everybody in that moment is going to have to admit he is king. He is sovereign. He is the Lord God Almighty. And there'll be no escaping that moment. And so this is why now is the time for us to praise him, to acknowledge him, to admit that our God was dead, but is alive now. I want to close by telling you about a faithful man who was willing to be faithful in the small things and the big things. This man was a highly respected man. This man was a pastor. He was uh, pastoring in the year 155 AD. His name is Polycarp. And he was discovered to have refused to burn incense to the Roman emperor. And his lack of social credit score Didn't mean he wasn't just going to be losing his social cred. He was going to be losing his very life. Fox's Book of Martyrs tells us the details by saying that after the guards apprehended him, he desired an hour of prayer in which being allowed, he prayed with such fervency that his guards actually had repented that they had been instrumental in taking him in. He was, however, carried before the proconsul condemned and burned in the marketplace. And the proconsul then urged him saying, swear and I will release thee, deny Christ. Polycarp answered, 86 years I have served him and he never once has wronged me. How then shall I blaspheme my king who has saved me? And then at that point he was brought to the stake and they normally would nail you to the stake, but he said, just let me be tied because I'm not going anywhere. 
And so they tied him, and the flames uh, that they lit up seemed to not be really taking hold as much as they wanted. It was uh, not really getting to him. And so they decided that uh, they should run a sword through him and then try to build up the fire bigger. And the Christians said, no, please let us take his body now and so that we can give him a proper burial. But the Jews tromped in and said, no, burn it all the more until there's nothing left but ash. And then the Christians hung on to the end to gather up what was left of their beloved pastor, Polycarp, and they then gave him a proper burial. Why do I bring up Polycarp? You say, well, you brought up Polycarp because he's a great example of being faithful unto death and he's a martyr. Yes, but more. Friends, Polycarp was the pastor of this church in Smyrna. Polycarp was a disciple of John, the apostle whom we believe wrote this book. Polycarp would have heard these words and they sunk in deep. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Friends, Polycarp has a crown of life. He's eating right now from the tree of life. He's not been hurt by the second death. He's in joy with his savior forever. Friends, these words, I think they're heavy, but they are good news to us this morning. Even if we steeply decline into the pit, we will arise victorious in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, we enjoy so much freedom. Um, And by your spirit's power, we pray that you would enable us to be faithful as the seasons around us change. Uh, Lord, while our our nation has enjoyed a season of summer, uh, we know that we are entering winter. And would you pray, I pray that you would give us the ability to be faithful even unto death. Lord, I pray that we would present every man, woman, and child here mature unto Christ, standing firm in the small things and standing firm and faithful in the big things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.